As some of you know, our church staff just came back from a retreat uh, from Osaka, Japan. It was through the generosity of some anonymous individuals who want to annually bless the staff uh, with a team-building experience abroad. And so we pray God's blessing upon those who want to bless uh, the church staff. Well, we had three full days there. The first two days were filled with planned activities to bond our staff. The last of our three days uh, was a free time uh, for each of us to pursue our own interests. Uh, For some, it was to shop and to buy gifts for themselves uh, and their family, for others, a more cultural experience. And there was my own plans, uh, which was to eat my way through Osaka. You see, I'd heard that Osaka was one of the food capitals of Japan, and I began to list down all the recommendations that people had given me throughout these past years of where to eat in Osaka. And unfortunately, that list grew very long, and it would not fit into the normal three meals one would have in a day. So I tried to cross as many things off the list as I could and eventually had nine meals over the course of about 12 hours. Nine meals uh, over 12 hours, starting off with a 400-gram steak and ending the day with a special melon bread, vanilla ice cream, and chocolate syrup sandwich. If I told people that I ate nine meals in a day, you don't really have to ask me further what you do when you go on trips. It should be pretty obvious to you that food is a top priority when I travel. I can't even remember the last time I bought something for myself on any of these trips I go on. It is simply about the food, the cultural experience through food. I can tell you if people were to ask me, uh, what do you like to do on trips? I could tell you I like food, but then, you know, a lot of people like food. But if I told you I ate nine meals in a day, My actions speak louder than any words I can say. So it is as we begin a new sermon series this morning. I've entitled our new sermon series, Louder Than Words, Actions That Evidence Real Faith. And these next few weeks, we're going to be taking a look at one of the most practical of the New Testament epistles. Because we want to see how we can live a life louder than words, seeing how our actions evidence the real faith we have in Jesus Christ. Enough of the words. Enough of telling people we are followers of Christ, that we are Christians. It's time that Christians actually acted like one. And we're going to be studying the book of James these next few weeks. And as we study this book... We're going to see how we can evidence our faith in real, tangible actions that without saying anything, our actions will be louder than any words we can express through our mouth. Because it's high time that the body of Christ, every one of you, expresses our faith more than through words, but in action. I'd like you to turn with me this morning in your Bibles to the book of James. If you're new to the Bible, the book of James is in the New Testament towards the back of your Bibles. Uh, If you still can't find it, look for the book of Hebrews, and the book of James is after the book of Hebrews. I want to again challenge each one of you to every week bring your own Bibles so that you can look at the Word of God, uh, whether electronically or physically. If you can't afford a Bible, let us know, and we'd be more than happy to buy you a Bible on our account. The book of James, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, as we take a look at how we can live louder than words. Verse 1, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes that are scattered abroad, greetings. The book begins by identifying the author of this letter. This letter is written by James. James is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. He is the brother of Jude, who also writes an epistle, a letter. James, who writes this book, is not the James who is an apostle, but this is the James who, growing up as the half-brother of Jesus, was very skeptical about the claims of Jesus Christ being the Son of God. 
And yet, perhaps through the resurrection of Jesus, James believed. And through the growth of his own faith, and through his own leadership ability, he would later become one of the key leaders of the church in Jerusalem. The Bible tells us in verse 1 that this letter was written to a group of Christians of Jewish descent. And these Christians of Jewish descent were undergoing some sort of trial and persecution which we are not fully aware of. But whatever the trials they're going through, they were having second thoughts about living a life for Jesus Christ. They were wavering in their faith. They were thinking about the possibilities of returning back to their worldly ways. And so James writes them this letter to encourage them not to compromise their faith, not to return to worldliness. And he wanted to encourage them to give evidence of their real genuine faith in Jesus Christ in the midst of what they were going through, in the midst of their trials. You see, James saw their trials as an opportunity to proclaim their faith loudly to a world in which they lived. You see, it's very natural for a Christian to live forth a Christ-like life when everything's going well. When things are going fine, it's easy to live a Christ-like life. When God is blessing your life, it's easy to live for Him. But it's very difficult to live a Christ-like life when you are encountering trials. It is a wonderment to the world for the very same person to live for Christ in the midst of great suffering. You see, the world will have a question in their mind. How can you love a God? How can you live for God who allows you to go through these trials? The world is going to ask you that question. And the world will think it's very natural if you decide not to live for Him. But the world will be in wonderment if you can still live a Christ-like life in the midst of trials that God allows in your life. And so James begins this letter by encouraging his audience, his readers, to show forth their faith to a world louder than words by embracing life's trials, by owning it, by accepting life's trials. Now, how do we do that? We begin, number one, with an attitude. Look at me in verse 2. James writes, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. There in verse 2, James very definitively and clearly writes that number one, our attitude, if you're taking notes, the attitude in trials is one of joy. The attitude in trial is to have joy. James says, consider it all joy when you fall into various trials, when you encounter all types of problems and trials, consider it a joy. And in the Greek, this various trials can be as severe as perhaps the loss of a child or monetarily running out of money or simply catching a cold or getting sick. You know, it's really hard to have an attitude of joy in the midst of trials. How many of you would consider it joyful for you one day to become disabled, perhaps? How many of you would consider it joyful to be blind? How many of you would consider it to be joyful to lose everything in a natural disaster like a flood or an earthquake? How many of you would consider it joyful to fail in the workplace? How many of you are praising God when you lose a child or can't have a child? How many of you are praising God when you aren't able to go on vacation and you see everyone else going on vacation, but you can't because you can barely make ends meet? I don't think anyone in their right mind would say that they are truly, fully joyful when trials and problems come into their life. Now, James wasn't saying we shouldn't feel bad when we undergo trials. 
James is not saying that we are to be a masochist to enjoy painful things when problems come. But instead, we are to see those trials as opportunities for spiritual growth, personal growth. To see trials in life as something that you can learn from, can profit from. To replace the bitterness that naturally comes with trials in our life and to replace it with an attitude of joy that should mark a follower of Jesus Christ. Now imagine these Christians who are reading this letter. They're going through their trials and in the very second sentence after James identifies himself, they read these words, my brethren, my fellow believers, Count it all joy when you fall into trials. They must have been shocked. They were told to find joy in that which they considered a burden, and perhaps they had become bitter and had begun to contemplate no longer being a follower of Christ. James was advocating an attitude that says in the face of trials and troubles, bring it on. I'm going to be happy instead of bitter. To have this type of attitude would certainly show the world that you are living a life louder than words. This is a running theme throughout scriptures if you have read through scripture. Remember in the Old Testament what Job says when God had taken everything away from Job. Job is able to say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Likewise, Paul, writing to the Thessalonians, says the very same thing. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Joy amidst trials is an attitude that speaks louder than words to a community who cannot understand how one can find joy in times of trouble. Now, why? And the question of why we can find joy in times of trials is found in verse 3 and 4. Look with me. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. James continues and tells us the reason for why we can find joy in trials. Because it is an opportunity for growth, personal growth. Because the outcome of trials is the sharpening, the molding, the bettering of a person. Every person who undergoes sufferings or trials of some sort comes out better because they have gone through it. When God sends trials into our life, it is the means by which God uses it to transform believers into the people that will live lives that honor and glorify His name. Imagine that. God allows us to undergo trials because it is often the means by which He uses it to transform a believer into people who will live lives that honor and glorify Him. Can you see trials as such? The idea of testing in verse 3 comes from the Greek, dokimion, is the idea of refinement. It is uh, picturing a refiner's fire, and if you know anything about uh, meteorology, uh, when a, a mineral goes through a refiner's fire, that's when the beauty of the mineral like gold and diamond comes out. In the same way, when a believer goes through the refining fire of life's trials, then that is the true beauty and the true nature of one's faith is shown. What does it produce? The Bible says in verse 4, it produces a person who is more steadfast who is one able to persevere. The Greek word translated patience, hypomenen, has the idea of endurance. And let endurance have its perfect work. Your faith produces endurance. 
the ability of a person to stay on his feet when facing the storms of life. It is this process that is part of the perfection process, the maturing process that God desires all believers to go through. When a person faces trials, number two, the product of trials is the perfecting of the person. The product of the trials is the perfecting of the person, the maturing of the person, the emboldening, the solidifying of the person. Why? Because verse 4 tells us, because they come face to face with the realities of life. Part of the perfection process, the maturing process, is to show that you and I are lacking nothing. It focuses a person on what is most important in life. You see, when we don't have any problems in life, we get greedy. We begin to think of what we do not have. Look at what we don't have. We don't have a bigger TV than my friend does. We don't have a newer car. We don't have a bigger house. We don't have as many friends as the other person. We don't get invited to as many parties. We're not recognized for who we are. But then when problems come, when trials come, you know, those things don't matter anymore because it then focuses us on what's more important. Let me give you an example. Oftentimes, if you're watching the news, especially the news of someone who has lost their house because of fire, perhaps, and they've lost everything, they're often put on TV, and the reporter asks them, how are you? And they'll get on, and they say, we've lost everything in the fire. But you know what? We're still alive. And although we've lost everything, we haven't lost the one thing that can't be replaced, myself and my family. It's interesting, at that moment, whether they're believers or not, at that moment, in the midst of tragedy, somehow they're so focused on now what is important. We've lost everything, but we're still living. And that's what trials does. It perfects the person. It matures the person who now realizes what's the one most important thing in life, which is their life. And that will cause them, hopefully, to endure more, to persevere more. You see, the person who wallows in their sorrow, feeling sorry for themselves, will never learn the lessons that the storm brings. When storms and trials in life produces patient endurance in your life, you learn to slow down. You learn to stop what you're doing. And then you begin to see the product of trials. If there's never any problems in our life, we never slow down to patiently allow God to work. We never slow down and recognize our need for God. If everything is going perfectly, you know and I know that we do not turn to God. But you know what happens in your perfect life when perhaps you or one of your family members becomes very ill, gets very sick. What happens? Somehow, at that moment, when you receive news that you are very sick or your family member is very sick, everything seems to stop in its track, right? Everything that you thought was important is no longer important. And you begin to be focused on your loved one who's sick or yourself and how you will live your life. That's what trial does in our lives. It focuses us. The perfection, the Bible says, is a process where the end goal is a matured believer who lacks nothing because now he knows what is important in life. It is a person now who can persevere and endure until the end. You see, the world is not impressed by men and women who run at the first sight of danger, but they are wowed when a person is still standing after getting hit by the storms of life. That's when the world wants to ask the person, what is it that has given you the strength to persevere through life's trials? And that's why we are often impressed with men and women who are able to pick themselves up after a tragic failure. Where do they find the fortitude and the strength to do so? 
I recently was touched when I read an article about the life of Esther Yabara. It is people like her who evidence the product of faithful endurance in trials. It was an article written by Sophia Lee about the life of Esther Yabara, who died at the young age of 21 years old. 21 years old after a two-year battle with cancer, having been diagnosed with a rare stage four soft tissue cancer. Lee writes, Esther's story has parallels with that of Brittany Maynard, who three years ago became the face of right to die advocacy when she died at the age of 29. Both Esther and Brittany were young, vivacious women facing terminal cancer during their prime years. But their legacies reveal starkly different views on life and death. Brittany chose to end her life under Oregon's assisted suicide law, viewing her decision as, quote-unquote, death with dignity. Esther chose to live her last days to the fullest for the glory of God. Brittany said she would avoid fear, uncertainty, and excruciating pain caused by cancer by dying on my own terms. Esther, on the other hand, decided to lay everything at the feet of Jesus, including fear, uncertainty, and pain, leaving it to the Lord to decide the day of her passing. Brittany said her suffering would be a nightmare scenario for family members. Esther, on the other hand, learned to comfort and exhort family and friends through her suffering. At Esther's memorial service, her father, Ron, teared up seeing the hundreds of people who showed up. He got up on stage and he said, Hi, I'm Esther's dad, and I'm proud to be Esther's dad for these many years. As he said those words, he broke down. Later, Ron would tell the author he regretted his introduction. I should have said this. Hi, I'm a Christian, and God has given me the privilege of being Esther's father. It's something Esther taught him. Even when people fussed over Esther in the hospital room, she always reminded them that Jesus should be their focus. A friend said her legacy is not one of despair. She did not want her legacy to be one of sadness and despair, but she always encouraged us to choose joy every day, as Christ did. Now, Esther wasn't perfect. She was not always so composed. When radiation treatment soon caused her thick, glossy, chestnut-brown hair to fall out, she fretted like any woman would. When her then suitor decided not to pursue a relationship with her because of her cancer, she wept. She asked God, will I ever get married? Will a man ever love me? When she had to stop working out as she was an athlete or taking classes, she got anxious and restless. She asked God, why is this happening? Why did God allow me to get cancer? But Ron, one night, her father Ron asked his daughter how she was doing. And this was her reply. God took everything that was important to me away. He took away my ability to play volleyball, my ability to work out, to go to school. He took away all my hair. All I have left is God, my family, and my friends. And Dad, I've never been better. Under Oregon law, with her terminal illness, Esther at this point could have requested a lethal dose of drugs and other means to end her life. Since that state's Death with Dignity Act passed in 1997, more than 1,100 Oregonians have done so. But instead, even in agonizing pain during the last days of her cancer struggle, Esther would sing the song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And she would ask each doctor and each nurse if he or she knew Jesus Christ. Her husband, Jacob, recalled 
They were concerned about saving her life, but she was trying to save their soul. Hospital visitors would say that she was the most joyful person in the room, often wiping the tears of others and asking how she could pray for them. She fully trusted what was supposed to happen, and that was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen, her cousin said. Before Esther died, she called all of her youngest, younger siblings, she was the eldest, to her side, and she urged each one of her siblings to pursue Jesus. On July 24th of this year, Esther drew her last breath in the presence of her family. Her husband, only 24, a widower, said that he was not mad or disappointed because Esther did get healed. She got healed better. He said, I saw a lot of miracles and crazy things happen, but I didn't own Esther. I just got to spend time with her for a little while. But boy, was she amazing. True stories of people like Esther Yabarro's life are a wonderment to a world that a person can still live for Christ in the midst of great suffering and trial. It's hard. And I read the story and I wondered how I would react if that news was brought to my life. But the product of one's joy and suffering is evident in the product of what becomes of a person. But I know it's hard. How do we do that? How do we find joy in our trials and suffering, even if we understand that the product of trial is for our betterment? Verse 5 to 7 tells us how. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. How in the world do you have an attitude of joy in amidst trial, even knowing that the end product makes you better? so that you can live out a life louder than words, that enablement, the Bible tells us in verse 5, is simply to pray. The enablement that gives you the ability to endure your trials comes through prayer. And that's number three, if you're taking notes. The enablement through trials is prayer. But the question is, what do we pray for? Look at verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. The wisdom here in verse 5 is not talking about IQ wisdom. It's not talking about head knowledge. In the context of these verses, it is the biblical concept of wisdom, which is the understanding of the will of God. You pray that you will understand in the midst of your trial why God is allowing you to go through this. So when you are in trial, you pray to God and you ask God for the enablement through His power to give you an understanding and an acceptance of God's will for your life. And that is very difficult to do. But that is how we get through the trials of our life. You see, God promises the believer the ability to see the importance of persevering and enduring through the trials of life. But have you prayed for that? You see, most of the time when trials and suffering and problems come into our life, here's what our prayer looks like. Lord, just solve my problems, right? Lord, if I'm going through problems and trials, just take it away. Here are the three steps I want you to do to take and settle these issues. And that's our prayer, Lord, take away our problems, take away our trials. And when He doesn't seem to answer, we get mad at Him. We think He's either mean, or He doesn't love us, or He's angry at us. And God is none of these. But we've just been praying the wrong thing. 
our prayer should not center on the outcome. Although we can tell God what we would like, but it must be in accordance with His will. Our prayer should not center itself on the outcome, but on our ability to endure it. And so our prayer should be, Lord, give me the strength and the fortitude and the endurance and the wisdom to endure the trials I'm going through. Many of us pray for a specific outcome. And when that outcome, which is usually take away my problems, doesn't happen, then we grow very bitter. And that's often the root of bitterness. But instead, if we're praying for acceptance and the acceptance of the will of God, then it puts a peace that passes all understanding into our lives. And so perhaps you may have a boss or a colleague that you cannot stand at work. And you've been praying for God to deal with that person. And what are you praying? You're praying that God would fire them. Or you're praying that God would just move them to a different division. Or that God would change them. But how many of you have ever prayed? How many of you have ever prayed that God would change you to make you patient to put up with them? To be able in the midst of their obnoxiousness for you to be able to have the grace to show them some kindness. It's a hard one to pray. Or how about when it comes to your spouse who you're so frustrated with and I don't know what you're praying about for your spouse. Maybe you're praying that your spouse will become more like you. Or heaven forbid that you're praying that God would call your spouse home earlier. But how many of you have ever prayed, Lord, give me the serenity, give me the patience to put up with my spouse because he or she doesn't seem to be changing and I've got to live with him or her for the rest of my life. So I just need you to help me go through this. How many of you are praying in that your teenager would be like some other family's teenager. Lord, change my teenager to be more like someone else. But instead, how many of you should be praying, Lord, help me to be a great parent, to be able to disciple my child through my actions, to help me understand what they're going through so that I can journey with them as they go through a very difficult life stage. How many of you are praying that teachers you don't like or schools you don't like will conform to the best? But instead, how many of you are praying, Lord, change me so that in the midst of my frustration with my school or my teachers that I will be able to reflect Christ to them? How many of you are praying that your parents would be like some other parent you've seen? But instead, you should be praying, Lord, change me so that I can have the wisdom to know how to obey them so that I can reflect Christ to show them what a relationship with Christ means to my unbelieving parents. There must be balance in prayer. And the Bible tells us the enablement through trials is through prayer, but the prayer is for wisdom, a wisdom to accept and to understand why God is allowing you to go through what you go through. And the Bible tells us, He promises us that He will help us, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and will be given to Him. And that's why so many people identify with Reinhold Niebuhr's The Serenity Prayer. It's one of my favorites, and I've shared it before, but it's so apt to share it now. And The Serenity Prayer says this, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, Enjoying one moment at a time, 
accepting hardship as the pathway to peace. Taking as he did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it. Trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever and ever in the next. Amen. When I get to heaven, I want to ask Niebuhr if perhaps he wrote this prayer after he read the book of James because it fits right in. Give me the peace, Lord, to accept the things I cannot change to accept the trials as a path of grace, to accept the world, not as I would have it, to trust that He will make things right if I surrender to His will. When you can pray this type of prayer, it enables you to go through the fires of the trials of life. Verse 6 to 8 talks about the type of person who prays it. It is one who does not doubt. But you know, verses 6 to 8 are often misconstrued and taken completely out of context. A person will say to me, Pastor, look, it says in verse 6, Let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, but he's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Therefore, Lord, if I pray without doubt, I'll get it. And so we pray for a new car. Lord, I don't doubt that you can give me a new car. Where's my new car? And the Lord doesn't give it to us. And we say, see, you don't hold to your end of the bargain. You said, let him ask in faith without doubting. I did. Where's my car? completely out of context. In the context of the book of James chapter 1, he's talking about a person who does not doubt that the God he is praying to is able to journey with the person through the trials of life. This is a person who does not doubt that God, in his ultimate wisdom, knows what he is doing, even though you don't know what's happening. That's the type of an undoubting person James is talking about. So, you pray with the truth of knowing that there is a God who will journey with you through life's problems, who knows what He's doing so that you can live in serenity and peace, knowing that at the end of this trial, you'll find that it is better for you having gone through it. The enablement of trial is through prayer. Now look at verse 9 to 11. James will now bring it to a practical conclusion. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with the burning heat than it withers the grass its flower fails and falls. Its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. In verses 9 to 11, James gives examples of two types of people to apply this principle of finding joy in trials. He talks about the rich and the poor. That basically covers everyone. Both the rich and the poor have problems. Now, I don't need to expound much on it. You know that the poor, by virtue of being poor, have lots of problems. But some may think that the rich don't have problems. The rich don't go through any trials. They are troubleless. And if you tell a poor person that, you know how they'll answer? Fine, then give me the rich man's problems. I want the rich man's problems. Do you really believe that? that the rich man's problems are somehow less in intensity than the poor man's problems. They have their own problems as well, and you don't want to trade with them. It's like when I call my friends who live in the first world U.S., and I ask them, how, how are they? How are their kids? They tell me, Pastor, would you pray for our family? Pray for my children. 
They have this allergy and that allergy. They're allergic to soy. They're allergic to flour. They're allergic to bread. They're allergic to chicken. I'm thinking, my goodness, they can't eat anything. And then they ask me, Pastor, what about you? What about you living in a polluted third world country? Do your kids have any allergies? And I said, no, by the grace of God, all three don't have any allergies at all. Isn't it surprising? In a third world polluted country, all the kids here usually don't have allergies. In a clean first world country, every other kid has an allergy. Now, do you want to trade your problems with theirs? Have you ever seen a kid have food allergies? It's sad. It's hard. So everyone's got their own problems. Everyone goes through their own trials. So in light of both groups having problems, what should be the perspective of those going through trials? And verse 9 to 11 tells us, number four, that the perspective of trials is that we all have the same outcome, the same ending. Number four, the perspectives of trials is that we all have the same outcome. If we have the same outcome, then both the rich and the poor and everyone else needs to glorify God through those trials. The first is the poor. How in the world is the poor able to glorify God? Well, the Bible tells us, let the lowly brother glory in his, in his exaltation. The poor are to get their joy when they come into their spiritual reward when they are called to heaven. They can look forward to that future reward. They go through their present trials of being poor, but they can rejoice in the spiritual riches that God has promised the poor if they live their lives for Him. The Bible talks about the exaltation of all believers regardless of their social status. And if you want to read more about that, you can read that in the book of Romans. How about the rich? The rich are reminded that they also will die. And they need to remember that their riches are temporary. And James uses the example of a flower in the field. One day it shines forth its beauty. The other day it gets burnt up and its beauty is no longer there. And so they also need to be laying up treasures in heaven. And even though the rich go through their trials and they might, might be tempted to compare with other rich people, know that all have the same outcome and they are to live their lives for His glory because we can't take anything with us. All will perish. I like the story told of a man, a rich man, who found out it was his time to go to heaven. So he asked the Lord, Lord, can I just bring one thing to heaven? The Lord said, no, you can't bring anything to heaven. You know, when you die, you've got to leave everything on earth. But he kept bothering the Lord, Lord, just one request, just one request. Finally, the Lord said, okay, you can bring one thing. Happily, the man packed his suitcase full of gold, which he would bring to heaven. When he arrived in heaven, the angel saw him carrying a suitcase, and he said, sir, sorry, you can't bring that in here. Nothing is allowed in heaven. But the man said, well, the Lord said I have an exception. I could bring this in. Okay, the Lord said so, the angel said. But by the way, what's in that suitcase anyway? So the man opened the bag, and they both looked at the gold. To his surprise, the angel said to the man, Oh, why did you bring flooring to heaven? You see, in heaven, as you know in the book of the Revelation, the streets are made of gold. That which we prize so highly here is what we step on in heaven. It's a good reminder that even if you can bring something of great value here, it's, it's just pavement. So it is with trials, both the rich and the poor go through it, same outcome. Someday all of us will die. We can't take anything with us. Yes, some will live longer. Some will live shorter. Some will go through different types of trials. But at the end, death is the great equalizer. 
that when you have that perspective as you go through trials, then you realize the life you live is only temporary. The trials, as Paul would write, are only light and momentary troubles in light of the great glory that awaits us. And so as we go through trials, we have the opportunity, knowing that we have the same outcome, to begin to store heavenly treasures in how we live. And by doing so, as whether rich or poor, having our actions speak louder than words because of a right perspective about trials. Think about how the world lauds the wealthy who have chosen to give away their fortunes before they pass. We think of Bill Gates or Warren Buffett, and I don't know their spiritual standing, but the world is enamored with them because they have vowed to give away their billions before they pass. The world is so impressed with those types of lives that they're willing to do that. What about you? If you're a wealthy person, does your life scream Jesus Christ to a world because you know that we all have the same outcome? How then will you live? But then what about the poor? How can the poor have their actions or the poorer people who are not so rich how can they have their actions shout louder than words? Think of all the poor people who have chosen to live joy in their lives, not seeking for more worldly fortunes, but now spiritual fortunes because they know what will happen at the end. They can have their actions speak louder than words. And I remember the story I read uh, of what happens in Cairo. The city of Cairo, Egypt, has its own unique version of poverty called Garbage City, very similar to our Trash Mountain. Every morning at dawn, some 7,000 garbage collectors on horse carts leave for the city of Cairo, where they collect the garbage left behind by the city's 7 million citizens. After their day's work, they return to Garbage City, bringing the trash back to their homes where they will sort out what's useful, and we're aware of what happens. Now, in Muslim countries like Egypt, there are certain religious restrictions on Muslims sifting through trash or refuse. So the inhabitants of garbage cities are either not religious or some form of Christians or have some sort of Christian heritage, but they are the poorest or the, they are the poorest of the poor, the outcast among outcasts. In 1972, there was a young Egyptian businessman who lost his watch, valued then at roughly 11,000 U.S. dollars. And 11,000 U.S. dollars in 1972 was a lot of money. Now, as you can imagine, it would have been unthinkable to have a valuable watch like that returned by a member of Garbage City. And yet, that's exactly what happened when an old garbage man dressed in rags found the man's name engraved on the watch and returned it. When asked why he would do so, he replied, my Christ told me to be honest until death. Because of the garbage man's act of obedience to Christ, the Egyptian businessman later told a reporter, I didn't know Christ at the time, but I told the garbage man that I saw Christ in him. I told him, because of what you have done in your great example, I want to worship the Christ you are worshiping. And this businessman, true to his word, studied the Bible, grew in his faith. Soon he and his wife began ministering to Egypt's physically and spiritually poor. In 1978, he was ordained as a pastor and now leads a church that meets outside of Garbage City. That is how the poor, or the poorer people, who many of you think you are, can also have your actions speak louder than words. And we all are so impressed by the stories we read in the newspaper or on social media about how the poor security guard or, or the poor taxi driver returns large sums of money that they find. Because our assumption is that they're going to keep it because life has thrown them a wrench and life has given them troubles and trials. And you know what? If they had kept it, no one would have said anything, right? But because they returned it, 
and quote-unquote did the right thing, wow, we're so impressed. But if they would only go on to say one step further why they do what's right, because my Christ told me to be honest until death. You and I are not exempt, regardless of our social status, to have our actions cry out louder than our words of our faith in Jesus Christ. And it all begins with how we embrace trials and the problems that we go through. Remember, it is an attitude of joy that must permeate our lives. It is knowing that the product of trials is the perfecting of the person, the maturing of the person. And that only happens through the enablement, through prayer, and having the perspective that even though we go through trials, we all have the same outcome so that we better begin to live with our lives to glorify Jesus in the midst of trials. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder to not allow bitterness to take hold when the trials and the problems of life hit our lives. Help us to permeate an attitude of joy knowing that you journey with us through what we're going through. You know what we're going through, and it's good for us. We may not fully understand it, and those I pray this morning who are going through trials, that they will trust in a God who knows what He is doing to allow it to happen. In whatever the case, it's my prayer that all of us would show the world that we embrace life's trials because through it, we can glorify the God who we are in close relationship with, to glorify the one through our lives who has saved us and who journeys with us. May your word bless those who are going through trials this morning to give them assurance and comfort. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.